0: Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. This past Sunday was the 4th of July, and to celebrate, Pastor Phil gave a special Independence Day message. Enjoy. Well, good morning, great to see you again. Uh, as I've come out of the waters of baptism and just had a great time. Let me just say something for those of you maybe watching us online, those of you maybe guests here. This is almost a regular occurrence at Scotts Hill, not 10 on a Sunday, but almost every single Sunday we are watching people's lives be transformed and we're celebrating together through the waters of baptism as we encourage one another and we encourage people and as we celebrate and give thanks to our great Savior. This is an incredible thing that's been happening at Scotts Hill and we're so excited about that. Aren't you excited about that? You should be. Yeah. Amen. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Well, Today is the 4th of July, and we had initially last year planned on having a great celebration together on this day. We actually considered not doing it in the morning, but doing it in the evening, and then having a great fireworks display in the evening. But we had some problems with the fireworks display, people, they were all booked up. We had no opportunity to do that. And now that everybody's doing fireworks, we decided let's just do the thing on Sunday morning, have a great time of celebration together, our freedom as Americans citizens, our freedom as children of God, and we will give God great glory today. Now, today is the 245th birthday of the United States of America. It was on this day, yeah, 245 years ago that uh, the first continental congress finished a document that is known as the declaration of independence it was to declare their our independence from the control of britain and that document was actually written and completed on july the 4 1776 it was first signed by john hancock but it wasn't until august the 2nd that it was actually signed by 55 or 50 yeah 55 other signers of that declaration And all the individuals who signed that declaration were signing and making a commitment that they were going to sacrifice everything they had for the security and for the freedom of the 13 colonies that are now known as the United States of America. And then in 1787, the the Constitution was drafted. In 1788, it was ratified. And then in 1789, the Bill of Rights were actually written. And with those documents all in hand, this country has been uh, led and guided to its politics and its processes for 245 years. No other country can say that of any document that they've ever had. Because all other countries, their founding documents have been so radically changed that the average year for countries operating under their guiding principles is only 17 years. So for the last 245 years, America has been doing this, though not perfect by any means, but has been continuing to protect and to secure the freedom that we have now on this day July 4th people are gonna have all kind of different ways of celebrating people are celebrating wearing by the the colors red white and blue many of you look like American flags this morning you've come here this morning and the major color of today is red white and blue in fact do you know that Americans on the 4th of July spent an average of almost six million dollars on American flags Six million dollars. Listen, I went and bought three this week and I stuck them in my yard and I thought, yes, first one in my neighborhood to have some American flags. I got three of them. My neighbor across the street pulls out 300 or more and he's just lining it all up. You know, men like to um, one up one another and he certainly did that for me. But here's the interesting thing about American flags. The majority of them are made in China. And so, I mean, go figure that one out. And so not only do people like to put out the red, white, and blue on this day, but they love to eat. And we're going to consume more meat on this day than any other day in the course of the year, even more than Thanksgiving. It's really crazy. You know, according to the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council, yes, that is a thing. That is a thing. The National Hot Dog and Sausage Council says that Americans consume on the average 150 million hot dogs today. That's enough hot dogs to go from LA to DC five times. And we consume over 19 million watermelons on this day, 23 million cases of beer on this day. Now, for us today, we're not going to be adding any st- to the statistics as we meet together afterwards because we're eating fried chicken and we're eating barbecue pork and we're having iced tea from Smithfields afterwards. Yeah. Now, the hard T is for the volunteers and our staff later as we clean up. (laughs) Fireworks are a big thing. How many of you have already been to fireworks displays? According to the American Pyrotechnic Association, also a thing, that there have been over 14,000 professional fireworks displays in America uh, uh, leading up to and on the 4th of July. 14,000! Now, that's not even counting all of the backyard celebrations and the neighborhood celebrations. And you know that when you have that much fireworks, you're going to have some injuries. Today, the average number of people who will be in the hospital for for fireworks injuries are 8,000 people. 70% of those people who end up in the hospital are males of various ages. So don't give a boy and a man fireworks, you don't believe me? Just ask Terry. Ask Terry. Turn your attention. Hold the hand, TeeGo. Oh hey, hold on, hold hold on, hold on, Two cars, huh? You
1: got two cars
0: coming two different ways. Here you go, Bag up, bag up, bag up, Terry, put it in reverse, Terry, put it in reverse, oh Lord, Lord Jesus, oh Lord, oh Jesus, what, what, what you doing, Terry, Terry, what's up up? I- go- We were trying to hire that guy this year, but he was not available. So when it comes to the 4th of July celebrations, there are all kinds of things that we have a tendency of doing, don't we? But you know, we're living in a culture today and in a country where not everybody is excited about celebrating the 4th of July. We're living in a time where there has been probably the lowest in the last two years. George Barna just came out with a survey this week he said, the, pa- the, the sense of patriotism and positive thoughts of America is at an all-time low right now, lower than any time that we've ever been able to measure it. And we've got people who are not happy about celebrating freedom of a country such as we live in. And so we have to ask the question, why is that? And part of that is because of the changes in culture, and in America. We're in a different kind of war today. Now, America's not um, unfamiliar with war. The very first war is the Revolutionary War where we fought for the independence as a nation. The next major war was the Civil War where we fought for the abolishment of slavery and the freedom of human beings. Then we had World Wars one and two where we fought against political dictators and evil regimes then we had the korean war and the vietnam war and then the wars in afghanistan where we fought about against despots and terrorists around the world but today we're having a different kind of war and in the kind of war that we're experiencing today is the whole thought of this cultural war and in a cultural war there are unconventional weapons in a cultural war there are unconventional strategies and we are dealing with this kind of a war now, we, our country has paid the price with m- m- nameless, I mean, nameless, so many countless number of men and women who have given their lives. Matter of fact, we want to honor them today. If you have served this country in the military of any branch, or if you are currently serving right now, I would ask you if you would stand together. All those who have served and are serving, would you stand together as we honor them for their service? I mean, the age range is just amazing. Some of them look like they just came out of the Civil War, and uh, no. <laughs> but the freedom that we have now—now now here's the thing of where we're dealing with today: this unconventional war has unconventional weapons, ideologies, and tribalisms. They have unconventional strategies, which is meant to divide us and create disunity within us. And within our country today, we're feeling this tension. There's some people that would be willing to die at any moment for this country. There's some people that would do everything they could to transform this country into something that it has never been. And then there's the majority of the people who are caught in the middle who recognize that, yes, America has some great, great blessings and some great opportunities of the past, but also we have fallen so short, and there's so many areas of our lives as American citizens that we need to improve in. And then we kind of live in this this culture where we're like saying, if I say anything to celebrate America, I'm deemed as a nationalist. Or if I say anything against America, I'm deemed as a Marxist. And then what we're finding is this great division. Now, let me just say this. I'm a patriot. I'm grateful for having been born in America. I'm grateful for the blessings that we have as Americans. I'm a patriot, but I'm not a nationalist. I don't believe that the only answer is going to be some kind of internal policies that we put all of our hope in politicians and governments to transform people's lives. I'm not a nationalist. So what do we do as a a group of believers What do we do as we're living in a country that's so divided? Where is the church in all of this? And I want to say today that the church has a unique opportunity. We're in a unique place as a people of God because we are part of two kingdoms. As children of God, first of all, we are part of the kingdom of God. We've been bought and purchased by the blood of the Son of God. We have been infilled with the power of the spirit of God. We have been given instruction through the word of God. And we have the gospel. We have the hope for humanity. We have the power of God that leads us into salvation. And so we have a wonderful opportunity as kingdom people. But not only are we part of a kingdom of God, but we're part of a kingdom of earth. We're people of the earth. And we must live in this world. We must deal with these cultural issues. So the question is, how do we as a people of God navigate ourselves in a culture that is so divided and so torn apart? I want to share with you this morning three things that I believe God is speaking to the church about. I'm not speaking to America. You understand that? Speaking to the church. Speaking to the people of God. And in these three points, there are going to be some tension this morning. I want you to know that right on the outset. For some of you, the first point you're going to want to celebrate with, you're going to want to shout amen to. But others of you will be uncomfortable in that point. And then the second point, those who are uncomfortable with the first point oh, want to shout amen. And those who like the first point are going to feel uncomfortable with the second point. But then when we get to the third point, is where we deal and we bring all of this together because here is the real answer. And I want to tell you, here's the tension. So many times we get drawn into the wrong kingdom, don't we? We're people of the earth, but sometimes we act as though this is our eternal home. It isn't, it isn't. So as a church navigating through difficult times, What does God have to say to us? Open your Bibles this morning to Jeremiah. It's an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, then Jeremiah, the major prophets. Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And as you're turning there to your devices, to your Bibles, maybe just looking at the screen in a few moments, here's what has happened in the nation of Israel. Now, the people of Israel are people chosen specifically by God. God set them apart as his people, He has given them his word. He has given them his presence. He has given them his power. They were to be the image bearers of God on earth. They were to demonstrate the glory of God. They were his people. And they were to move about in such a way that the nations would come to know the glory of God. But what happens is by the time we get to the book of Jeremiah, the people have so drifted from God. They had moved into a cultural war of sorts. And they had put aside the things that they once were in God. And as a result, God is giving them some warnings. But here's the wonderful nature of God. He gives them an invitation. And as a loving heavenly father, he invites them to return to who he wants them to be. Now, let me tell you the danger in a lot of churches today People will take America and insert it as the people of Israel. America is not Israel. We're not. America is a nation, but we're not Israel. If anything, we find in this passage, it's not a direction towards America. It's a direction to God's people who are living as people of the earth in America. And so this is to us as a faith family. This is to us as people who have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. And this whole passage, God is calling us to specific actions for his namesake. Join me as we pray together and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is timeless. We thank you, Father, that we can always rest on the absolute, inerrant, inspired word That is your very breath. And, Father, as we look through time and what you've said to the people of Israel, Father, may we glean today what you're saying to your people in Christ, in the church, moving in this cultural war in such a way that we navigate in a way that people's lives are constantly being transformed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here's what he begins. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of of his harvest. The first thing God does is he speaks about his own memory of his own people. He says to them, he says, I remember your devotion. This is God speaking. I remember Israel when you were young. I remember your devotion to me. I remember how you followed me closely in the wilderness. I remember the days when you trusted me and I fed you with manna. I remember when when your clothes did not wear out and the sandals on your feet never gave up. I remember how I guided you through the wilderness and you followed after me closely. And God is calling the people of Israel to remember their heritage as a people. Now, If we take that and say, what is God saying to the church today? I think that God would be saying to us this simple point. We must remember our heritage as a nation. Now remember, I'm not speaking to America. I'm speaking to the church. But when it comes to the church, and when it comes to this whole corporate thing of moving in a culture that is battling with this whole thing of our nation... God is bringing us back to a place where we need to remember our heritage as a nation. Why is that important? Well, we have so many revisionists today in our classrooms who are wanting to rewrite history. Because people don't like the outcome of it, they're having a tendency to rewrite the history. And now these revisionists are teaching our children, our college students, and there are many kids in our culture who have never heard the foundations of the beginning of the United States of America. And they haven't heard because here's what they're being taught. They're being taught that the founding fathers were atheists, they were agnostics, they were deists, they were Unitarians, and even some are teaching that they were actually enemies of Christ. And so what's happening in this culture, people are forgetting the very heritage of our own nation. So here's what I want to do this morning for the next couple moments. I want you to hear from those individuals who felt that God called them to lead and to help build a foundation for what would be known as the United States of America. I want you to hear from them, not from the revisionist, but from them through the course of history. Let me give you a few of them. Christopher Columbus. It was the Lord who put into my mind the journey. I could feel his hand upon me. There's no question that inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Bible for the execution of the journey. I did not make use of intelligence, math, or maps. Sounds like every man on vacation. (laughs) It is simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied. The fact that the gospel must still be preached in so many nations is what convinces me. This is what Christopher Columbus wrote about coming to what he thought were the Indies. but was America. What about the early pilgrims? Did we bring the Bible to these shores? Or did it not rather bring us? The breath of the ancient prophets were in the sails that drove the tiny Mayflower. You may remember in historical days when we were taught history that the Mayflower Compact was found on the Mayflower. It was found by preachers. They were having a Bible study and the Mayflower Compact had two points to it. The first point was this, that we, will, we shall evangelize this new culture for the gospel, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, that we will establish a civil government that's good for all men. That was the basis of the Mayflower Compact. What about George Washington? Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embodied the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and to this extent, our civilization and institutions are emphatically what? Christian. Yeah. How about Patrick Henry? Patrick Henry said it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. James Madison wrote this he said we have staked the future and all of of all of our political institutions upon the capacity of each of us and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments if you go into the Capitol building which you cannot in these days but if you went in a rotunda you would see that there are four pictures that have an image of the exploratory years of the United States of America the first one is um, you find Christopher Columbus and what do they do when they land? They're having a prayer meeting. The second one, you find DeSoto, who discovers the Mississippi River. What are they doing? They're having a prayer meeting. The third one is you find the pilgrims on a Mayflower. You know what that picture is they're doing? They're having a Bible study, and they're praying together. The fourth one is a baptism of Pocahontas. And so in the first four pictures of the exploratory years of the United States of America, you have two prayer meetings, a Bible study, and a baptism, all captured there. Do you know that our first 106 of 109 institu- uh, uh, colleges and universities were all driven by Christian mission statements? How about this? Harvard. Harvard says to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's a mission purpose statement of Harvard. What about Yale? Yale says to propagate in this wilderness the Blessed Reformed Protestant religion. Princeton says this, cursed be all the learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. Under God's providence, she flourishes. I could go on and on and on and on. What's the point? Here's the point. When we talk about America, everything we talk about when we speak of America should not be about the greatness of America, it should be the greatness of God. Everything we talk about should be the greatness of a God who has incredible grace to us. And in his providence, he's working in our lives. We should speak clearly about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ over everything. Because everything we see in the foundation of the historical documents of the United States of America is that it's about God. That doesn't mean America is a Christian nation. In fact, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. There is no such thing. But there are such things as Christian people seeking to guide and to work within the parameters of the truth of God's word and trying to shape culture according to righteousness and holiness. And every opportunity we have when we speak of America should not be about our own greatness. I'm just going to tell you, the make America great again may be a great slogan for a political system, but it does nothing to bring glory to the God whose providence has blessed her. When we speak of America... It should always bring an opportunity and a springboard to tell people about the grace, the love, and the salvation that a person can have in Christ. So that's where we need to see the importance of our heritage. Now, a lot of you would say, yeah, preach that. I want to hear that. Our kids need to hear it. But that's not all there is because now we get a second point and this creates another tension. Here it is. We must repent from our harmful neglect to our nation. I'm speaking to the church. We must repent. It's one thing for us to remember our heritage, but we as a body of Christ must repent for our harmful neglect to our own nation. And this is what Jeremiah says to the people of Israel. Notice what he says beginning in verse 4. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and deep darkness and a land that none passes through where no man dwells and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things but when you came in you defiled my land and my heritage became an abomination the priest did not say where is the lord Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. And in verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold no water. What is he saying to his own people? He's saying that you have neglected the nation. And there are two major things that he speaks to them about here that they need to repent of. And I would say that if I can think of the church in America today and the church throughout the history of America, there's are some areas that we need to repent of as a body of Christ, as people of the kingdom of God who are living as people on the earth. Let me give you the first one. Repent for neglecting truth. Neglecting truth. These were the people of God. They were given the Ten Commandments. They were given the revelation. They were given the word of God. And what did they do? They began to drift from the teaching of God's word. And he accuses the shepherds. He accuses the priest. He accuses the prophets who were the mouthpieces of walking away from the truth of God's word for their nation and for their culture. And then what happens out of that? Let me tell you what happens out of that. They start to make and carve and make these cisterns that cannot hold water. And their own systems begin to fail because they've neglected the truth of God's word. I think the warning to us as a body of Christ in our culture has been something that we have seen slowly take place over the years, haven't we? We've seen the drifting of truth We've seen the lack of boldness in preaching the gospel. We've seen creating a social gospel. We've seen creating all of these other empty cisterns that hold no water. And as a result, even the body of Christ in our nation has drifted away and neglected truth for our own culture. In fact, what have we done? We've become like the culture in so many things, and in so many ways. Some years ago, the largest survey for pastors in America across all denominational lines took place. And there was one question that was asked of all the pastors. I'm not talking about the people in the pews. I'm talking about those who are leading their congregations. And the question was simply this. Do you believe that God's word is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative for life? One question. What was the response? 95% of Episcopalian pastors said no. 87% of Methodist pastors said no. 82% of Presbyterian pastors said no. 77% of Lutherans said no. 67% of Baptists have said no. And what have we done? We've neglected truth. And when the body of Christ neglects truth, the culture has no compass. Whenever we take the perfect gospel and make it a progressive gospel, then it becomes a powerless gospel. And what we've seen in our culture, not coming from America, but coming from the halls of churches and institutions who claim that we belong to God, and yet we're not going to follow His Word. We're not even going to believe His Word. We're not going to teach His Word. Alexis de Tocqueville was a French philosopher. He's also known as the father of social science and political science. So he's from France. He came and visited the United States of America in her early days. And as a philosopher and a social scientist, he wanted to know what is it about America that's, that's really causing her to be so blessed. And here's what he wrote. He said, I sought for the greatness of the United States and her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. I sought for it in her rich minds, her vast world commerce, her public school system, and in her institutions of higher learning, and it was not there. I looked for it in her Democratic Congress and her matchless Constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard the pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and her power. If there's a fog... In the pulpit, there's a mist in the pew. And if we're not teaching the truth, then what happens is culture ultimately suffers because there's no moral compass. And the body of Christ is called to stand on truth. And we are never to neglect the truth that God says, even if it's not popular in culture, even if we get pushed back. Jesus said, they hate me, they will hate you. Paul says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. He also says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they do not see the glory of the gospel. And if we as a people of God are not going to stand on truth and proclaim truth and be bold with truth, then we are neglecting the greatest need that our culture has. Listen to me. It's not about being a greater America, it's about being redeemed by the greatest Savior and the only Savior that there is. So we repent because we've neglected truth. But here's a second piece. Repent for neglecting justice. Do you know that when you come to the word of God, that all through the Old Testament, his heart is set on justice? Do you know that? And when you go through the Old Testament passages, you will find two words that are parallel to each other. They always appear side by side. Sometimes one's in front of the other. But here it is, justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. And the psalmist says justice and righteousness are the foundation of his what? Throne. It's of his throne. And all through the books of the Bible, and particularly to the prophets, it's all about their judgment coming because the injustice that has been shown to people. Thirteen times in the book of Jeremiah does he speak of this issue of justice and calling for the people of Israel to turn back to treating one another with justice. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3, he says, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shared innocent blood in this place. Now notice what he's talking about here. He's talking about widows. He's talking about orphans. He's talking about those who are oppressed in culture. He's talking about those who have experienced all kinds of injustices. Let me tell you something. When we go back to the history of our nation, we can see not only the neglect of truth, but we can see the injustices. And listen to me carefully. When you neglect truth, injustice always follows because justice and righteousness go together. And so what he's saying to the body of Christ today is there needs to be some repentance going on here. We have neglected truth. We have neglected justice. And there are some of the most vulnerable in our culture who have been treated with great injustice. Let me give you one of those. Pre-born human beings. People say, oh, they're potential humans. No, they're humans with potential. And in our culture, 66 million Children have been murdered. 66 million children. Here's some stats that might shock you about that. That's 2,363 pre-born children will die in America today. On an average, every day. Every 90 seconds, a child is aborted at Planned Parenthood facility. A pre-born child can be aborted up to birth. A pre child can be aborted for any reason today. And when we look at that, we say, where's the outrage? Where's the outrage? Let me tell you what I've heard people say through these stats. Where's the outrage of Black Lives Matter? Because the majority of children who are aborted are black. I've heard people say, where's the outrage of the feminist movement? Because the majority of the children aborted are females. You know what I say? Where's the outrage of the church? Because we are called to walk with justice, and to do everything we can in our power to help the most vulnerable. But it's not only just for pre-born humans. How about people who have um, economic impoverishment? Now, I am not a fan of equity. And we find nowhere in scriptures the process of equity being taught, everybody owning the same thing. Jesus didn't even teach that because he talked about the talents given to different people were different amounts. And so I'm not talking about equity. But what I am talking about is those people of God and his sons and daughters who have been richly blessed by material things. What are we doing to help those who need our help? What are we doing? What about racial injustice? And along the racial lines and the prejudice that has been so part of our history for so many years. Now, there's a difference between prejudice and racism. We all have our prejudices. And all of those things are issues of the human heart that we need to repent of. And where's the church in this? Now, here's the tension. For a younger generation, many of you are saying, yes, 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 we need to repent For an older generation, you're thinking, why do I need to repent for something I didn't do? But here's what we need to understand what what biblical principle is. There's a biblical principle that's known as collective confession. And we find that in the pages of Scripture. In fact, we find it with Nehemiah. If you remember Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. The people were in exile because of their sin. And then he hears about Jerusalem's walls being crumbled, and he cries out to God in prayer. I want you to hear his prayer. Here's what he says. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, That I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Do you hear him throwing himself in there? Nehemiah wasn't around when those things happened but being part of the people of God and the responsibility that the people of God had to transform culture, all collectively are a part of that and all need to ask for forgiveness. Why is that so important? Let me tell you why. Because first of all, we acknowledge injustices by doing that. We acknowledge it. Secondly, it puts us in a position where we say, I will not participate in injustices. I will walk in truth. I will walk in justice. I will walk in righteousness. If we don't, we will be no different than the people in Germany in World War II. Those many believers, Christians, who were continued to be freed to worship God on their own, While millions of Jews were being arrested, put on trains, taken to the concentration camps to be murdered. On one occasion, one man that was a part of a local congregation after World War II writes his testimony, and here's what he says. He says, every Sunday our people would gather in our little church and we would worship, but behind us was a railroad track. And every Sunday at the same time, a train would be flowing down the railroad track. And on that train were thousands of Jews, men, women, boys and girls. And we can hear their screams. We can hear their cries. We can hear their pleas. And we were so disturbed about it that from that point on, when we heard the train approaching, we would sing our hymns louder. And we would sing louder to God so that we wouldn't hear the cries of people going to their deaths. You see, the problem with living in a culture like this is we can become so desensitized to the hurt of other people that we can gather in the comforts of our buildings and we can do our praise music and we can sing great glory to God while people all around us are suffering. And God is calling us, listen, you remember your heritage, but repent of the harm. That doesn't mean we have to live every single day feeling as failures. When we repent, what do we do? We confess it to God, we turn from it, and we walk in justice and righteousness. And what we say is we will not be that. Now, I got everybody mad at me. So, what do we do? Number three, we must return to our only hope for our nation. We must return to our only hope for our nation. What is our only hope? Listen, Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what he says. If you return, O Israel, and and I love this about the Father. I love this. He's so gentle. He's so kind. He recognizes our failures. He recognizes our faults. He knows we're not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. But in his loving heart, what does he do? He calls us to come back. He says, return, O Israel, declares the Lord. Return to me, you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, you see that? The nations shall bless themselves in him and in him shall all glory. The answer is not found in our political systems. As wonderful as they may be. The answers are not found in our politics or our political candidates. The issues are not found in our Declaration of Independence. Do you know in our Declaration of Independence, there is the most popular phrase that people memorize more than anyone, and here it is. We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everybody wants that. But it's not found in a constitution. And let me tell you this no political party is equivalent to Christianity, no document is equivalent to the gospel. No great American dream is equivalent to the kingdom of God. Those do not satisfy. It is only found in Jesus Christ. He is the hope for the church, He's the hope for our nation, He's the hope for humanity. And when you and I are returning to the Lord, when you and I are seeking to live according to the gospel, the greatest gift that you and I can give to our country on this birthday is Jesus. And we give that through our own lives and through our own commitment to him as the kingdom of God's principles flow through us and impact the kingdoms of man. And when they hear, and when they see, when they taste, and they experience the person of Jesus Christ, then those nations will find their glory in him. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Paul writes in Galatians, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you and you will know the truth and the truth will make you, what? Free. Or how about what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15? These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, the answer is in Jesus Christ. Church, listen, listen, listen. We need to put away all of the weapons of the cultural war. And we need to move and focus on what is the greatest need for our culture. What is the greatest need for our country? The greatest need for our country is to remind them of the greatness of God. And we need to remind them of the gospel of Christ. And we need to remind them that our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. So what do we do as a culture? What do we do? Okay, after we remember, after we repent, after we return, what do we do? This is not in any notes, but I want you to hear. At the end of the book of Jeremiah, the people go into exile. And they go into exile for 70 years. The Babylonians take them. And they're under the control of a foreign government. Why? Because they refuse to return. But even in that, here's what happens. Jeremiah shows up to them, and he speaks to them. And he tells them that as they're in the middle of this culture war, that there are three things that they are to do. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 29 verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. The most popular verse of Jeremiah 29 for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you you will seek me and find me you when you seek me with all of your heart what do we do let me give you three things we do in this culture war church Engage with the culture. Engage with the culture. We're not called to be a monastery. We're not called to be salt kept in a salt shaker. We're to be the salt of the earth. Engage. Develop relationships with your neighbors. Develop relationships with co workers. Get involved in the lives of people. Engage with them. Do life with them, but from a different perspective. Secondly, Pray for the culture. Pray and ask God to give us opportunities to be able to see transformation taking place as we share the message of the gospel with humanity. Pray for people who are in areas of injustice. Pray for people who are vulnerable. Pray for our culture that they may see God. And thirdly, trust Jesus. Jesus. All those of you who were in vacation Bible school a couple weeks ago, trust Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. Because he knows the plans he has for us. And we trust him. I want to tell you, many people say that America has a great story. She does. But it pales in comparison to the greatest story of all time. That God would send his son take on human flesh, live in a broken world where he was oppressed and experienced the greatest injustice that any person can ever even imagine. That he went to a cross on our behalf. He died. He was buried. He rose on the third day. And the greatest story is this, that in that picture is the story of redemption. And Jesus has the plan of redemption written in his hands as he died for us. If you're here today and you don't have a savior, if Jesus Christ is not your savior, then you don't have a savior. But if you're here today without Christ, let me encourage you to surrender your life to him because he's the only hope, the life that you can have. I implore you to consider his claims and come to him. If you're a believer here this morning, living in this culture war as we all are, let's do what God calls us to do, to be the salt, to be the light, to move forward with one unified message. Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm going to ask you if you would stand together. We're going to have a word of prayer. I want to pray for our country. I want to pray for us. And I want to pray for the opportunity of redemption. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Father, remind us all the songs that we've sung this morning are about the freedom that we have in Christ. And Father, we know that as believers. But that freedom... Is the only answer for humanity. That message is the only hope for the nations. Apart from that message, there is no life. Apart from that message, there is no liberty. Apart from that message, there is no joy. And Father, may we walk in such a way that people will see Jesus in us. And even today, the gift that we give to our nation today is to declare the greatness of our Savior and to proclaim the hope for humanity. As we stand and we behold the Lamb who was slain, as we stand and we behold The story of redemption written in his hands, and that we proclaim this day that Jesus is Lord. Father, I pray for our nation. But Father, I pray more for our church that we be the instruments of justice and righteousness clothed in truth that is undeniable as we lift high jesus we pray in his name amen thank you for listening to our podcast if this message blessed you and you now have a desire to follow jesus i encourage you to go to scottsillorg slash next steps so that we can follow up with you also if you like the message Feel free to share it on social media with your friends and family. God bless.